Well, good, good morning and welcome to everyone here, those joining us online over at West Tonka and Bush Lake. It's so great to be together. I just want to really quick echo Pastor Joel's remarks and say how grateful I am for this church. Uh, when we go to the scriptures, we know that a church isn't a building, but it is a body. It's not a place, but it's a people. And so I'm so grateful for each and every person that makes Westwood Westwood. And so we're going to dive in. We're continuing along in our series on the book of James. And man, it has been a hard hitting series. It's this prophetic, wisdom-rich book that challenges us to be and love like Jesus. And today we're looking at James chapter 3 as James continues along and, and really elevates this idea of finding communities and relationships that thrive and that flourish. And I don't know about you, but I think we need more relationships and communities that thrive and flourish. Um, I'm reminded of a time uh, several years ago whenever I was a part of a relationship in a, in a community that nece didn't necessarily grow and thrive and flourish. As many of you know, and, and much of my sermons, I share that I grew up playing hockey of all things. And when I was uh, post high school, I had the chance to play what's called junior hockey in Burlington, Vermont. In fact, to prove it to you, I got a photo here of my junior time. You can see it there. Yes, that is actually me. Okay, I was a goalie and some of y'all are like, that explains a lot. Right, I could have challenged the Michelin man for a Halloween contest wearing those pads. Um, but I left my hometown of East Texas to move about 30 hours cross country to Burlington, Vermont. And I didn't know a soul. All right, it was a big step of faith and it was really nerve wracking for me. I didn't have uh, but one person on the team who I had known from a previous team that I had played on. Uh, but I showed up and I, I made the team and it was during tryouts that I actually befriended somebody uh, who made the team as well. His name was Matt and he was a, a Burlington native um, there. And Matt was a defenseman. So if any of you know, defensemen and goalies, we're, we're the best of friends. Okay, but Matt and I became fast friends, so much so that early on in the season, his dad had a birthday party. And out of everybody on the team, Matt invited me to go spend time uh, with his dad celebrating his dad. And when my parents came into town, Matt was the first person that I invited to go to dinner with my folks because we just wanted to kind of bless him and, and uh, show our gratitude for his friendship uh, to me. And, and things seemed to go well. Until October of that year, I sustained a, a pretty su substantial knee injury. And I had this interesting realization about my friendships on the team. I realized this, my friendships were contingent upon my performance. Okay, some of y'all know what I'm getting at. When I played really well, guess what? I had a lot of friends on the team. Okay, and when I didn't play so well, yeah, you can figure out where, where I'm going. I didn't have anybody, I, I was kind of isolated. Well, guess what happened whenever I had my knee injury? Right? I wasn't playing well, I wasn't even playing, and so I was kind of lonely and isolated. And you can imagine what happened between Matt and me in our relationship. Our relationship began to teeter a little bit. And all of that really came to a head in January. I was able to kind of recover, come back, and we were right in the thick of a playoff hunt, and we were playing a really pivotal game in Syracuse, New York. And we were getting ready, and I got the nod to start that game. And, uh, you know, I was, I was getting warmed up. I was taking shots here. You know, I was, I was feeling really good. I was like, man, this is going to be it. We're going to win this game. Um, I, you know, I had my head right. Everything was good. When all of a sudden I felt a sharp pain off the back of my right knee. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I looked down to see a puck kind of teetering there. And what I realized, one of my own teammates during warmups fired a puck from the corner, trying to bank it off the back of my leg and into the goal. Now, let me just clarify for you. It didn't go in. <laughs> just to put that out there. So I did what any good person, good moral person would do in that moment. Yeah, I took the puck 
And I fired it right back at him. Okay, that's sarcasm. Don't do that. Don't take that as the application. The, the difficulty, though, for those of you who know, like that's a big no-no in hockey. I, I got a little too much sauce on the puck. In fact, I sailed it right by the guy's head. Okay, he ducked and he came up and I realized it was Matt. Yeah, oh no is right. Oh no is putting it lightly actually. Because Matt began to shout things at me and I kind of rebuttal and I shouted things at him. Do you want to know what we said? We said something like this. He said, those pads don't make you look skinny. And I said, yeah, Matt, you don't skate real good. Yeah, we didn't say that to each other, just so you know. What I came to realize, though, is that our relationship completely dissolved. Our friendship was gone at that point. And, and we both began to harbor bitterness, anger, and hate towards each other. But as I tell this hockey story, you know, some of you might have a hockey story, but I think we could all transition it and say, you know what, there might have been a time that you have also experienced an instance like that. Have you ever found yourself at your place of employment, maybe lashing out at a coworker? Have you ever found yourself in your relationships and in your community? Maybe it's your family and, and you begin to raise your voice with a family member or with one of your kids or your grandkids. Have you ever found yourself in conflict with a neighbor? Right? We find ourselves, if we're not careful and if we're not cautious, uh, finding the relationships in the communities all around us beginning to teeter and dissolve. And that's what James really begins to talk about in James 3. He talks about communities and relationships that thrive and flourish. And so I want us to look at that one key question today. And that question is this, how can our communities and our relationships thrive and flourish? Not teeter on the, the brink of dissolving, but how can our relationships thrive and flourish? James speaks about this in James 3, 13 through 18. Okay, and to give us a little bit of a, a roadmap for that, what James will ultimately do is he'll elevate uh, wisdom and, and wisdom playing an important key role in our relationships. So first of all, James talks about uh, what we're going to see is earthly wisdom. He's going to talk about earthly false wisdom and, and the fruit of that being uh, dissolving relationships. But then he's going to give us a second thing. He's going to give us true heavenly wisdom. And he's going to compare and contrast these two types of wisdom, earthly wisdom and true heavenly wisdom. And, and so I just invite you, hear these words. As I mentioned, James is a heavy hitting book. There's a lot of conviction. There's a lot of challenge within these words, but I, I invite you tune your ears to what James speaks about. And so he starts in James 13 or James 3, 13. He, he asks this question. He says this, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. He continues on. He says, such, quote, wisdom does not come from, down from heaven, but is earthly. It's unspiritual, even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But... The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. I love this. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Okay, there is so much to unpack here. But before we really dig into all of these verses, let's look a little bit at the, the big context of what James is getting at. Look at verse 13, just to kind of give us a, a reset. He, he begins by saying this, who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show up by their good life, by deeds done and humility that comes from wisdom. So James opens up with a hypothetical question. He says, who is wise among you? And then he answers it. He says, if you are wise, let them show it by their good life, by their deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. And so what James is ultimately getting at is he's saying the level of wisdom that you have in life is on displayed and validated by the fruit of your deeds and the fruit of your life. I don't know about you, but man, that's the type of wisdom that I want. A wisdom that is so deeply entrenched and rooted in my life that it impacts my external behavior. But we got to ask, what is wisdom exactly? Well, a few weeks ago, Pastor Joel gave us a definition. You can see it here. This is from his sermon a few weeks ago. He says, you know, when we're thinking about life, we're kind of moving from data. We're just kind of gathering data and we're kind of beginning to synthesize that into information. But then we move from just information to kind of forming that into knowledge, maybe concepts or ideas. But the thing about it is it's not just good enough to keep it as knowledge. We have to turn the page a little bit and see knowledge lived out, knowledge applied. That's how I would really define wisdom. That wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom is knowledge practiced. It's not enough just to fill our minds with with intellect, but we have to allow it to show forward in our hands and in our hearts as well. So wisdom is knowledge applied. Now, when I think about this, I want to just kind of tie a bow on on what wisdom and knowledge is in that relationship. I heard a funny saying once that said this, you know, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Okay, some of y'all just had your mind blown. Okay, that right there, that little nugget, that is free with your cost of admission this morning. Okay, but here's what it is. Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. Amen, anyone? All right, as a Southern boy, I love me some fruit salad. I would never put a tomato in a fruit salad, okay? But that's, that's man, I feel like we should just like close in prayer right now on that and go have some fruit salad, y'all. Okay, but that's what it really looks like. Wisdom is knowledge lived out and knowledge applied. But now we begin to see that James elevates these two ideas of, of false earthly wisdom and true heavenly wisdom. We go back to verse 14 and we see what false wisdom really looks like. Earthly wisdom, he says this, but if you harbor, oh, that word harbor, it's so impactful. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, he says, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom, false wisdom, it does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. I mean, you can just hear these words, hard-hitting prophetic words for us. But I want to call out really two key ideas because this will help us understand, kind of giving a gut check. Are we operating in false earthly wisdom or something else? And there are two words that are used here. He says, avoid these things, bitter envy and selfish ambition. And so if you like take notes in your Bible or you like to take notes, man, like circle those words there. So what is bitter envy? Well, well, envy in and of itself means having an unhealthy longing for someone or for something, okay? But now James elevates it even more. He, he says, do not harbor. And I love that word harbor because it's like putting a, a ship uh, into, into port and, and allowing it to take root and to live and occupy your life. If you allow bitter envy to, to harbor into your life, this is what's gonna happen. And so envy with bitter, it, it means, man, it's making you sick. You're so sick for, for that thing or, or, or that person uh, that you literally look down on them with hatred in your heart. And then he goes, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, that word selfish ambition is important as well. Now let's just give a clarification. Is it bad to have ambition? N- no, absolutely not. 
And in fact, I believe that as followers of Jesus, we're called to have a a godly ambition to see things grow and flourish all around us. But James uses this word selfish ambition. And what he's getting at is this is the type of ambition uh, that is pitting one another against each other. And, And it's trying to knock people down off their pedestal. And the heartbreaking part about this is he's writing to believers. He's writing to a church, the church in Jerusalem, meaning that there are people in the church who are trying to knock each other out. Uh, We're trying to step on people in order to puff ourselves up. And then the worst part about it, he says, do not boast about it. Meaning there are people in the church who are boasting about their bitter envy and their selfish ambition. All right. And the thing about it is that whenever these things, envy and ambition that, that is selfish, whenever we start boasting about that, James continues on and he says, where these things take root, where these things are lived on, every vile practice, every evil practice will arise and there will be disorder. Okay, you can begin to see, man, this is the type of thing that will completely dissolve and eradicate communities and relationships. And so it's just an invitation for you. Are you operating in this false earthly wisdom? Because we, we see it on display today and the culture all around us. You know, we, we think about um, how in our places of employment, sometimes we, we look at people not as people, but as commodities, as people to be used and utilized. That's what it means to operate in earthly wisdom. Uh, we see people as things to be stepped on in order to prompt ourselves up, in order to get to the top. That's what it means to have selfish ambition or bitter envy in your place of employment. You know, or for others of us, it, it, it really takes root in how we speak. You know, last week, Pastor uh, Ben Griffin, my good friend, he shared a message that was literally and metaphorically fire. Okay, if you know, you know, all right? His message was so good and it was about taming the tongue and how nearly impossible it is to tame our tongue. But is it any coincidence that these two things go hand in hand? Because if we have a hard time taming our tongue, it's probably because we're operating in false earthly wisdom taking root in our lives. Or, you know, a lot of times it's, it's based on how we speak about people, either to their face or behind their backs. That's earthly, unspiritual wisdom. Or if somebody disagrees with us or we disagree with them, we have a longing and a desire to silence them, to cancel them, to, to, to put them on blast, to destroy their lives completely. That's what it means to have this false earthly wisdom. And, and so what we ultimately see is that James is, is challenging the church then and he's challenging us today saying, do not harbor bitter envy. Do not harbor selfish ambition because there will be disorder, there'll be disillusionment, there will be a dissolving of your relationships and your communities. That's what earthly wisdom looks like. But thankfully, he gives us a different way. He says, later on, he says, but there's a new type of wisdom. So let's go back to the verses here. He says this, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all, pure, then peace-loving. Hear these words, hear these describers. It's considerate and submissive. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. Peacemakers, I love this. Peacemakers who sow in peace. What do they do? They reap a harvest of righteousness. I mean, allow these words to to wash over you. I mean, it's this idea, 
Am I operating in this type of wisdom, a, a wisdom that is pure and peace-loving? This isn't just a peace that means absence of conflict, but it means the absence of conflict and the thriving and flourishing of those around us. It, it means that it's considerate and submissive. It means that it's a, a wisdom that is full of mercy and good fruit. It puts the team first. It puts the relationship first over my own needs, my own wants, my own desires. This type of wisdom is impartial, meaning it's non-judgmental and it's sincere. It's authentic. It's true. And then this last little verse here, it says peacemakers. It's a describer of a person. You know, are you a peacemaker? If you're a peacemaker, that's who you are. And what do you do? You sow peace. And what is the result of that? It is a reaping a harvest of righteousness. Think about that. What does a harvest of righteousness do? Well, it's good for the entire community. It's good not just for you and for me, but it's good for all of those around us. Think about whenever they would bring in a, a harvest to the, the city back in the, the, this day and age. It was good for so many people. And so when I think about, man, this is, this is the type of stuff that I want. I want a harvest of righteousness in my family. I want a harvest of righteousness in my community, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, amongst all the congregants that, that I interact with. I want to be a peacemaker who sows peace, reaping a harvest of righteousness. And so what we ultimately see is that James is saying, man, there is a wisdom, a false earthly wisdom that seeks to sow seeds, not of unity, but of division. There's an earthly wisdom that seeks not to encourage, but to terrify. There is a false earthly wisdom that seeks not to unite, but to divide. And so James is challenging the church there and he's challenging the church today. He's saying, man, pursue this true heavenly wisdom. And so I just want to invite you to think and reflect with me. Which type of wisdom are you operating in? And so what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of a, of a practice. And I want to you know, assert to you that I, I believe that we are what I like to call three-place people. And I want you to think about the different places that you live into. And I want you to ask the question, am I operating in that place with true wisdom or false wisdom? So what are those three places? Well, we are people, first of all, that have places where we live. So this is your family. This is your neighborhood. This is where you spend a lot of your time, most likely. Okay, the second place that we spend a lot of our time is where we work. It's our, it's our nine to five. And so think about the relationships there. It's our coworkers. It's our direct reports. It's our boss, those sort of things. And then the third place is the place where, if you have it, you, you spend all your extra free time. Okay, as a dad of three, I don't have a lot of that, but okay, you, you get the picture. Uh, right, this is the gym. This is the coffee shop. Uh, this is your kids' sports teams. Okay, uh, this third place is, is kind of that place where you spend your leisure time. So where you live, your neighborhood, your families, where you work, your coworkers, and where you have fun. The place where you spend all your leisure time. And so just imagine, as you think about those relationships, are you operating in false wisdom or true wisdom? Are you operating in earthly wisdom or heavenly wisdom? And so what I want to do is I want to give you a chart for you to kind of do some reflection and assessment on, and maybe just kind of allow God to just reveal to you what type of wisdom you're operating in. And it's a big chart here, but let's start with the very first part. Um, you know, this first line is, is really talking about, are you motivated by Okay, are you motivated by envy and selfish ambition or are you motivated by purity and selflessness? You see, if we are motivated by envy and selfish ambition, we're operating then in false wisdom as opposed to true heavenly wisdom. Or, or 
you know, we think about the second part. Where are you sourced in? You're sourced in this earthly wisdom, meaning that you're opposed to God. As James said, this type of wisdom is demonic. He doesn't pull his punches. He goes right for it. Or true wisdom. And those relationships means that you're in agreement with God. You're bringing that relationship, that community uh, at the feet of Jesus. And you're saying, I want you to thrive and flourish this relationship, this community. Or the last part is, if you're operating in earthly wisdom, it is going to result in disorder and dysfunction. Or it's going to result in peace and flourishing for those who are there in that relationship with you. Now just do a quick assessment. Where do you find yourself in that community and in that relationship? You know, if I'm completely honest, it's like, man, most days I'm lucky if I'm, if I'm really crushing it on one of these, all right? Just as a pastor, as a guy that has it all together. I'm kidding, of course, all right? But it's hard. And so I want to know, how do I move then from operating in false earthly wisdom to true heavenly wisdom? Well, I want to give you on this last column some practices, some invitations, if you will, that maybe you can put into practice this day, this week, and this month. And so if you're operating in envy and selfish ambition and you want to start moving towards purity and selflessness, what is the invitation of the practice? It's this. It's to repent. It's to walk in repentance. Okay, now, for those of you who uh, maybe didn't grow up, like repentance is kind of a churchy word. So what is repentance exactly? Uh, repentance in the Greek is the, the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your mind. Uh, okay, repentance is, is meaning to turn from something. But we don't just turn from something into a vacuum. We actually turn from something to something. And so it means turning from envy and bitterness and selfish ambition, turning to purity and selflessness. And so we turn from something, we turn to not just something, but to a someone, namely the person and work of Jesus. And so you think about it, what is it that motivated Jesus? Man, it was purity and selflessness through and through. I mean, the person and work of Christ in Mark 10, it said these words, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So maybe for some of us, that's the invitation. It's like, yeah, I need to repent of those false motivations. I need to repent and pursue the life of Christ, his purity and his selflessness. Well, what about the other one? What if we're sourcing opposition to God, but we want to move to agreement with God? Plain and simple, the practice is this. Spend time with God. Spend time with God. It means each day finding, even if it's just a few minutes, convening and spending time with God and his word and spending time in prayer and silence and solitude. And if I'm completely honest, the days that I don't spend in time with God, there is like a magnetic gravitational pull back towards earthly wisdom. Okay, like it's like, this is our default. But whenever we spend time with God, we begin to agree with God more and more. And so why spending time with God? Let me just give you a quick example. Have any of y'all ever spent a, a long weekend with a, a family member or a friend, like intentional time with that family member. Okay, what, what happened when you got to the end of that weekend? Like, let's say you just got to the end on Sunday night. Okay, after spending several days with that person, um, you're like laughing, you've got your inside jokes, you, you get to that Sunday night and you're like, we finish each other's sandwiches. No, you finish each other's sentences, right? That's the same as whenever we spend intentional time with God, we begin to finish uh, what it is that God wants to do in this world. How we begin to see people the way God sees them. We begin to speak blessing over people the way that God speaks blessing over people. Oh, we begin to love people. Yes, even people who are hard to love. We begin to love people the way that God loves them. That's what it looks like whenever we spend time with him and we move from being in opposition to God to moving more fully into agreement with God. 
And so it's repenting and spending time with God. But what about the third one? Maybe your relationships are resulting in disorder and dysfunction and you want to move to peace and flourishing. What's the practice there? It's this, forgiveness and reconciliation. Now let's just camp out on that for a moment. Because this is probably the hardest of the three, is it not? It's like, sure, I, I can spend, man, I'll spend 30 minutes in time with God, but don't ask me to forgive somebody. Sure, I'll repent of my motivations, but to actually forgive somebody, to reconcile, whew. For me, I'll be honest, it, it took me years to forgive my teammate, Matt, for what he did. But whenever I finally chose to forgive him and, and release the grudge and release the anger and release the resentment towards him, I walked in freedom. And the realization is that our forgiveness and our desire to pursue reconciliation, it doesn't come out of our own strength and our own power. It comes from the, the beauty of the good news of Jesus, the gospel taking root in our own lives. You see, the realization is that our forgiveness of others should be a reflection of our forgiveness that we've received in God. That when we understand that we have truly been forgiven much, then we can forgive much as well. When we realize that we have been reconciled to God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, then that allows us to reconcile to other people as well. So friends, it's just this invitation. Maybe you, you have to just sit in that realization that you have been forgiven much, so you are called to forgive much. You have been reconciled much, so therefore you are called to reconcile much to those around you. And so operate in true heavenly wisdom, not false earthly wisdom, because the world wants us to hold on to grudges, disorder, and dysfunction, but the gospel calls us to forgive and reconcile. You know, I, I can think of no better example of what this looks like than a story that happened back in 2015. Some of y'all might be familiar with it. But in 2015, in the summer of, of 15, uh, there's a young man who approached a church in Charleston. And he walked into a Bible study. And he sat with them for quite some time, about 45 minutes or so. And after that time, this young man pulled out a gun and murdered nine people there in that Bible study. And later on, he was caught by the cops and he was brought in. And the headlines, you know, obviously wanted us to, to sow seeds of division. And, and the headlines wanted us to, to know his name. But what caught my attention was the response of the victim's family members. You can actually go and find this on YouTube. You can just type in Charleston church shooting family victims. But what caught my attention was how the family members approached this man named Dylan who was on trial. And they said these words, you took some of the most beautiful people from our lives. We welcomed you into our Bible study. We made you feel right at home. Everything in my fiber, everything in my being wants to hate you. But love will win in this moment. I choose to forgive you. Another man said, every fiber of my life is, is so sick, but may God have mercy on your soul. Turn your life over to Jesus. It's not like one day they just woke up and they're like, hey, we're going to forgive this guy. No, each and every moment they walked in repentance, they walked in, in time with God. So that then when the moment was right, they could choose forgiveness and reconciliation. 
And so friends, that's, that's what it looks like to operate in true heavenly wisdom. Now here's the thing, that is a high bar to set and I pray that none of us will ever have to face that type of atrocious evil in our lives. But what I am asking you, as we are formed into the image of Jesus Christ, that we are called to be people who forgive, that we are called to be people who reconcile. So maybe for you, it's a family member, it's a coworker, it's a neighbor that has a relationship that needs mending. That's what it might look like for you to walk in true wisdom, to be a person who forgives. Because friends, if we're honest, our world, our day and age, it is so mercy and forgiveness dehydrated. Our world needs people who choose true heavenly wisdom. And so how do we get there? We get there by repentance, turning to God in true motivation. We get there by spending time with God, spending time with Jesus, allowing him to form us to be in love like Christ. And we get there by pursuing the gospel lived out in our lives, forgiveness and reconciliation for God's glory and for the peace, thriving and flourishing of the world around us. So may we be people who pursue true heavenly wisdom. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus, that he gave us this example of true, pure, selfless wisdom It's personified and depicted in him. And we don't always get it right. It's never perfect in our lives, but we ask that you will give us grace whenever we fail, when we fall short. May we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so we just ask plain and simple that we can pursue that forgiveness and reconciliation, much like how Jesus said as he is hanging there on the cross, his arms stretched wide as he shouted out, not rebuke, but forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So form within us. May we be people who repent when the time is right, who are formed by time spent with you, and people who pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. Do a work in our lives, Jesus. We pray all this in your beautiful, matchless name and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.